Welcome to this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Each week on the show, we cover topics relating to building and growing startups in an ambitious and repeatable fashion. These are not your typical Silicon Valley startups where fundraising can be a goal in itself and where people build slide decks instead of building businesses. The things we've espoused for the past 460 episodes are things like freedom, purpose, and relationships. Much of being a founder is making decisions with incomplete information where the right answer is impossible to find through math or data. And on this show, we have several different formats. Oftentimes, we have tactics we discuss. We do interviews, founder hot seats. And this week, we have listener questions, questions sent by you, the listeners. Over the past couple months, I've been mixing up the formats, as you've noticed. And the feedback I've heard is that the tactical interviews and the, the interviews of the agony of defeat have been really well received. In addition, the, the listener question episodes tend to be listener favorites. So I want to get back in the groove of doing those. And today, I welcome uh, a co-host, Tracy Osborne, to come back and answer questions again. She joined me about six or eight episodes ago, answering a few questions. But before we dive into those, there's been a few comments on the startupsfortherestofus.com website. Go to startupsfortherestofus.com. We have a new design. You can check it out. And on episode 456, we had a comment from Karen that said, just popping in after listening to this episode to say how much I value your podcast. I've been a listener for quite a few years. As other shows have come and gone, Startups with the Rest of Us continues to be a staple for me. I've really enjoyed the mixing up of the format lately. It's been good to hear from different people. In saying that, and as much as I've enjoyed and got something out of each episode, I would not really be keen on having the podcast move to an interview format every week. I actually agree with that. I always enjoy the listener question episodes and get a lot of value out of those. The episode that really left a lasting impression on me was the one with Mike just before he started his hiatus. The way you skillfully weaved your questions in and around Mike's comments and your observations were very eye-opening, and I'm sure it resonated with a lot of listeners too. I would love to see more of that kind of format, kind of like a one-off mastermind session with a SaaS founder where it explores a specific challenge that they are currently experiencing. No matter the format, this podcast is and continues to be a cut above the rest, and a big thank you from this listener for everything. So thank you so much, Karen. And another listener chimed in and said plus one on that. So I appreciate the feedback on that. It's super helpful just to help, you know, help guide things. Could look at doing some more hot seats in the future. In episode 457, I answered a few questions. One was about starting a marketplace, and TJ wrote in and asked about two-sided marketplaces and, and how we should start it. And Sean DeWolf chimed in and said, great show. For two-sided marketplaces, I would suggest, number one, populate the list with the basics for free to satisfy your consumer funnel. Number two, give all artisans a basic free listing with an option to be removed. Number three, find sweeteners to sell to the artisans to give the individual listings a competitive edge. And the sweeteners he lists are enhanced listings, ads at the top of the given page in their category, sub-sites inside of your website, and prospect information volunteered from consumers can go to the artists for a fee. So thank you so much for that, Sean. TJ, thank you in the comments, and I appreciate everybody chiming in. Because as a community, we are, you know, obviously have so much more brain power and experience than just, you know, a podcast host or two sitting on the microphone each week. Also, if you haven't gotten your ticket to MicroConf Europe, it's in late October this year. Head to microconfeurope.com. Uh, we still have some tickets left. It's in Croatia, and it looks over the Adriatic Sea. Every hotel room has a view of the Adriatic. It's, it's very nice. Consider doing that, hanging out with 120, 130 of your closest founder friends. Also, if you didn't hear the save the date, MicroConf US next year 
is in Minneapolis, and it's April 19th through the 23rd. We're pulling it out of Las Vegas this year. We've actually been trying to do that for the last several years. It's kind of been the overwhelming feedback from folks, both folks who attend and folks who don't, you know, that they would prefer to see it in a different city. So happens to be in Minneapolis this year, April 19th through the 23rd. That's Growth and then Starter. Um, so check out microconf.com and your email address to hear about when tickets go on sale. We do expect the conferences to sell out, so you'll want to get on the email list if you're at all interested in joining us. And I believe we're expecting to sell tickets here in September. And with that, let's dive into some listener questions. So Tracy, thanks for uh, being a glutton for punishment and joining me on the show again. <laughs> Happy to be back. I'm stoked to answer some listener questions with you again today. Our first question is a voicemail. As always, voicemails go to the top of the stack. And this question is from a founder who has an idea or is working on a product and a funded startup with the same idea shut down in 2016. And he's curious how to process that. Hey guys, question about a strange experience and what you think would be a good way to go forward. I've been working on an app for about a year. It's a search engine for your personal computing history. It's at APSE.io. The acronym is short for a personal search engine. Last week I found out about another company building almost exactly what I've been working on. The thing is, they raised a $20 million round in 2016 and also shut down later in 2016. It's so weird reading the press coverage and marketing materials. They might as well be talking about my app. I can't find any reason for the shutdown, and attempts to contact people who worked on it have been unsuccessful. I've been working on the project solo for about a year. I had no idea they existed until a few days ago. I'm bootstrapped and have released a working product, so not in danger of going under myself. My focus right now is on going the customer base. What do you think I should do now that I know all this? Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thanks. Ryan Fox. Interesting question. What do you think, Tracy? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, super interesting, especially since like $20 million is not pocket change. And the fact that it was it shut down within the same year. And then I think he said he tried to contact the people running it and hasn't heard back. There's a lot of very suspicious things going on that lead me to think that the shut, company shutting down was not due to the product, but probably due to something internal. I don't know if you have the same impression that I do. I, I don't. I mean, it does sound a little weird, but frankly, raising $20 million, if you're going to raise that much money, then you raise it at, what, a, probably a $100 million valuation tends to be, 80 or 100 because uh, you typically sell, you know, fit, well, you sell 15 to 25% of your company, right, if it's a standard round. And they were definitely go big or go home. And go big or go home is basically spend all your money in 18 months. So the fact that they spent it all, you know, they probably hired way up and tried to do a big marketing push. So I I don't know that it sounds suspicious, but it definitely sounds like a a typical Silicon Valley play, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wish, I wish that the, they're able to get contact with the founders. I've done that for my apps where like my old Wedding Lovely app, I was able to talk to a few other founders who did something very similar, but shut down their company. And in those cases, I was lucky that I was able to, to get a hold of them. And they were excited to tell me all the things that went wrong because they were done and over it and moved on. You know, and there was this, they, he said he only heard about a few days ago. So maybe there could be some contact because it'd be, it'd be value, valuable information if he's able to contact those founders and be like, hey, just like, you know, above board, what happens? Is there anything to be worried about? But if that doesn't happen in general, I feel like it's it's not something that would should stop Caller from starting a company. 
No, not at all. I wouldn't be discouraged in the least just because a venture funded company couldn't make it. That's can almost be a good sign at times. You know, if, if they were burning through a million bucks a month, hired up to a team of 50 people or whatever it was they were doing, a lot of ideas don't work that way. You know, a lot of ideas, maybe they take years to do, or maybe it'll never make more than a million dollars a year, but that's a great full-time living for, for an individual. So I, yeah, I don't want to speak to this particular idea. I haven't, you know, looked into personal search engines or, or really what it's about, but just this, the question is really about a venture funded company went out of business. How should I, you know, how should I feel about that? And I wouldn't feel bad about it at all. I would feel the exact same way, you know, I do today as I did yesterday before knowing it. I think the other thing I would say is I wholeheartedly agree with you that getting in contact with someone from that company would just be, no matter what, if it's the founders or if it's an old salesperson or whatever, I have done this multiple times. Oftentimes you need to send a lot of cold email, LinkedIn outreach, Twitter DMs, you know, all the things to get a hold of someone. But once you get a hold of one person, they will often refer you to, to other folks. And I would spend more time on that than you probably think, you know, a judicious use of your time. If they raised that much money, they had to have had at some point quite a few employees. So I would head to LinkedIn and Twitter and Google and try to figure out, hey, who was a former employee of this company and and reach out as like, hey, I'm a founder of this thing and you worked on it. And I wondered if, you know, 30 minutes of your time just to, to talk to me about something. It works pretty well, you know, and again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, stick just to the founders, although that would be ideal. But I think that kind of conversation could be super valuable. Yeah, very valuable. I've, I've used that in the past myself. It's so great just to, because there's some things that you probably, you could learn that you didn't know about just from looking at from the outside. So like try to do that internal investigation, try to talk to someone in the company, you know, and then also just investigate everything that's public, see what they did, see the things that they released, you know, and see what you can learn from, from what they did that apparently didn't work and just see what you can learn from that. So thanks for the question. I hope that was helpful. Our next question is another voicemail. It's about growing an email newsletter audience. Hey, Robin, Mike. My name's Ben DeFrancesco, and I run a small consultancy here in Philadelphia doing mobile, web, and increasingly crypto and blockchain related work. I fell down the crypto rabbit hole many years ago, so it's been wild for me to watch it enter the mainstream consciousness so much over the last couple of years. About a year ago, I started writing a weekly newsletter covering technical topics in the crypto world. It's called Build Blockchain, and you can check it out by going to newsletter.buildblockchain.tech. I post about it on Twitter and sometimes on LinkedIn, and it has grown steadily but slowly over the past year. I have excellent open rates at 50%, and I often get people writing back to me with positive feedback. So I think generally I'm doing something right in terms of the content. Still, the list size itself is rather modest. My question is, how do I grow a newsletter audience? I often hear about people talking about, you know, building a list, but there's no viral component to a newsletter. And at a certain point, it seems like posting to social media has diminishing returns. Are there some tactics or strategies that I could be employing? For context, I don't have anything I'm trying to sell to this list right now. Though in the back of my head, I can imagine launching a book or course or even a software product down the road. For the moment, I'm kind of just focused on finding and growing my audience, an audience that has interests and aspirations that align with my knowledge and skills. Thanks in advance for any insights you can offer on how to do this. What are your thoughts on this, Tracy? This is a really good question. And it's funny, I've been watching the last few years as newsletters have become more and more of a thing, you know, as, as compared to blogs, right? But it does have that difficulty in sharing something that's over email. And after I, I read this question beforehand, I went through all of my favorite newsletters 
that I personally subscribe to to be like, okay, how do the other people do it? You know, and I feel like number one, the way I've found newsletters and the way I, I think all these, the, the ones I've been reading, I've been doing it in the newsletters, they'll have uh, asks saying, okay, if you want to support this newsletter, please share this newsletter on social media. You can sponsor the newsletter and the other ways of, of helping out. And so just being really clear in the newsletter, maybe at the top and maybe at the bottom, you know, just give people an opportunity and remind them that, hey, if you're enjoying this content, here's a way to share it. Yeah, I think I think that's a good approach. I think there's a lot you can do with this, and it, it depends a lot on your constraints. You know, do you have more time or do you have more money? And something that I would think about, if you have this newsletter, you're providing valuable content, and people are with 50% open rates, that tells me that you're writing engaging content that people are getting value out of because they're continuing to open it. So what I would look for is opportunities to get your newsletter or your brand out to a broader audience, right? And you're right, sharing on social is getting it out to your audience. And maybe you get lucky and three people retweet it, and then and then you get it out to their audience, but that is not a predictable way to grow a, a subscriber base. So I would think about approaches like this to reach larger audiences, or, you know, or audiences you currently don't have reach into. One is you're already creating content. Is there a way to either repurpose some of that or create new content as guest posts, whether you approach Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, any of the crypto, you know, there's tons of crypto sites, take the top five or the top 10 and pitch them on, hey, I'm a writer, here's the quality of my writing, I want to write for you. And you get, you know, a byline or a mention of your site within the article itself, right? I mean, this is a tried and true tactic, it takes time. But that's one way to get in front of, you know, I, I don't know, 100,000 crypto enthusiasts, right? By being on the number one crypto news site. I think a, a second one would be to do a podcast tour and to, to go on as, you know, if you're an expert and you have, you know, all this experience and you can say, I'm an expert because of this, or I'm an expert because I've interviewed a bunch of experts and, you know, go on a podcast tour. And you, of course you mentioned your brand while you're doing that, expose it to new people. I think doing interviews, it looks like you might already be doing some interviews. I'm wondering if you are, you know, gently asking for those, the interviewees to share social share, you know, when the post goes live. That's something I would consider. I wouldn't do it heavy handed, but you know, if, if one in two, one out of three shares it, that exposes you to new audience. People say, wow, this content was really good. I want to find more like that. And on and on. I mean, it's, it's the same playbook that I would say for almost for any startup. It's like you're building the list to some end, what are the marketing approaches you could, you could go down? I think SEO is another one. If you, had, if you had a larger footprint on your website, you'll have to evaluate, is SEO too hard in the crypto space? Do you have the time, the money to do it? Maybe, maybe not, but that's something I would personally evaluate because that's such a nice flywheel of traffic. You know, if you're giving something away that an open source library or something else that, that folks aren't able to get anywhere else, everybody links there, then you get the SEO juice, and then suddenly, you know, you triple your newsletter subscribers. Another way that I would think about, and this it comes back to that time versus money thing, if I had more money than time to devote to this, I would have absolutely seen people grow email newsletters with ads, with Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Google ads may be a stretch, but ads in other email newsletters, right? And that depends, you know, if you're not monetizing at all, then that's probably a tough justification, but that would then lead me to think about, well, how am I longer term? How am I going to monetize this? Whether it's with affiliate stuff or ads or, or whatever, that 
allows you to then know, oh, per subscriber, I make X dollars per month or X cents per month. So that means I can pay this much for a new subscriber. You know, that, that's where you're going to get to if you're going to grow it in a, in a sustainable fashion. And I think the last thing I'd say is you mentioned that the, your URL is newsletter.buildblockchain.tech to sign up. I would just move it to the homepage. I mean, you actually have a, you have a drip widget there on the homepage. Just buildblockchain.tech, go there to sign up. And it's it just less for people to remember. Yeah, that all makes sense. So it basically comes down to, you know, make it easy for people to sign up, make it easy for people to share and put yourself out there so that more people will know about you. So that you have opportunities to, to share what you're doing. And then if you have, if you can, then you can try using ads, but it's kind of like, that's the kind of like the step-by-step process. That's right. And I think, you know, using ads is dangerous to do early on. It'll help you move faster, but you need some budget to do it. And you can churn through money if you don't have any way to monetize or any idea of how you're monetizing. But if you know, again, you know, the value, the lifetime value of a subscriber, then this becomes a no-brainer. This is how Noah Kagan built the AppSumo list up to three quarters of a million or a million people was by running ads because he knew what the value of a subscriber was. This is one way that Brennan Dunn grew his uh, W freelancing list was using ads. And so this is totally, it's doable. It's just a matter of what's your, what are your constraints? Do you have the time? Do you have the interest in, you know, how, how big do you want to grow it? Yeah. I mean, and try doing step one to three first and see what success you can do for these like free ways of quote unquote free ways of growing your list and then using that as kind of like cherry on top. So I hope that was helpful, Ben. Thanks for the question. Uh, next question by James Bernhardis. He says, Hi, Robin Mike. Thanks for all the great insights you share on the podcast. I came across your podcast about a month ago after starting my own startup journey, and I've already learned so much from you guys. The knowledge and experience you share is amazing and has really stoked my excitement for entrepreneurship. My question has to do with the process of transitioning from a consulting-based model to a true SaaS model. My co-founder is a consultant who helps small businesses better manage their operations. One of the tools he uses in his consulting is an app that he put together in Microsoft Access to help his clients define and track their operations. I've been brought on as a technical co-founder to turn this Access app into a SaaS product. The SaaS app would initially continue to be used as a tool for my co-founder's consulting work with the goal of eventually moving towards offering it as a standalone product. I was wondering, what is your take on this approach? Are there any benefits we should be sure to take advantage of or pitfalls we should try to avoid? On the one hand, I see a potential advantage in the fact that we already have an initial user base in his current customers. But on the other hand, I am wondering if the fact that our initial users are using the app in a consulting context might lead to unanticipated headaches when we try to scale. Thanks again for the great podcast, James Bernardus. This is a good question. I've, I've seen folks do this well, and I've seen them do it poorly. I think the first thing that I would make sure is that you have the IP, that, that your partner owns the intellectual property to the thing, and that it wasn't built under, the Access app wasn't built under a contract, that if you forked a, a SaaS app off of it, that somehow that comes you know, back to bite you in the future. And that's just something you got to clear up and make sure you have. The pitfalls I would avoid, avoid or the big one is... Assuming that because he has had to build this for a number of clients, that everyone needs it, right? Or that there is a market need for this. I would validate that other people need it, that it is sellable at a purchase price that you want to sell it at, and that you can reach them somehow in some type of scalable fashion. Obviously, there are, there are companies that want to pay for this, but if each sales cycle is is 6 to 12 months long and people are only willing to pay $100 a month for it, then this 
it becomes a less viable business. So I would be having a lot of conversations before I went off and built a SaaS app with his existing clients, but also then, okay, where's a list of another hundred clients that are your potential clients that are like these other ones? How do I get in conversation with them? And it's easy. You're not selling anything, right? You say, hey, we are building this thing. We've been doing it as, because, you know, you just tell the story of what you're doing. Would you be willing to have a 30 minute phone call with me? And, you know, if you send a hundred emails, maybe you get 10 yeses. And that will be tremendously educational for you to ask the questions of what are you using today? You know, what, how much would you be willing to pay for this? Or you pitch it, Hey, would you be willing to pay a thousand dollars a month or, you know, whatever the numbers are. So there, there's a lot more that I would do before I wrote a line of code um, on that SaaS app. I do think that there's a big benefit to doing this in that your partner or co-founder obviously has a lot of knowledge, kind of institutional knowledge in his head about how this works. That's good. I think you guys have built in testimonials from the start. You could, you know, even ask the consulting clients if you can use their logos. So right from day one, even though you don't technically have product customers, you do have consulting customers or clients and you have logos and testimonials, which is a nice, a nice thing to have from the start. You could also get their input, of course, to help shape the direction of the product. So those are, those, that's kind of my hot take, my initial thoughts on it. What, what do you think, Tracy? I love the fact that there are existing customers that you can ask for help for building this product, you know, and this is a place where I, I agree with you, where this is a place where you can, you know, get more information and talk to other customers and make sure there's a market before you do any sort of writing of code. But as you start building a product, you can go to these existing customers with the MVP and start getting that feedback with people who are already hopefully fans of your co-founder who are, who, cause they're working with them in, in the consulting context. And these people can help inform how this, the standalone product can grow. And having that, that little bit of help, I think helps an app grow and helps an app launch, especially if you can get to the point where it's just good enough that then you can start taking that elsewhere, not like building the full on product, but getting just to that MVP. So then you can start talking with other people outside of this consulting concept. I just think it's going to be a huge help. And it's a really good sign to have those, those extra customers. But I completely agree with you that there are some pitfalls, as you mentioned, and just to be aware of what, what you said. Yeah. And I was trying to think of the dangers of it being consulting today and how that can impact your mindset, you know, of like, well, let's say you've built it for 10 or 15 existing consulting clients, you know, is there a danger that they really have a lot of input on shaping the product and and they do it in a way, such a way that it, it makes it less useful to the rest of the industry, you know, or do they want undue influence on it or whatever? And I, these are things you'll have to navigate. This is, I, I definitely think this is more of an advantage than a disadvantage. A lot of developers go and build products and then you can't get anybody to buy it and no one will tell you why they want it or, or won't pay for it, right? And you're, you're not going to be in that situation. But there are definitely some things I'd be thinking about as I, as I built this out. And there's, I mean, this is a, a process that other people have done before. You know, a lot of SaaS apps have come from consultants who realize that there is a, a, a need and that they can build something off that need. And of course, there's probably a lot that have failed as well. But this isn't like, a, you know, this has been done before and some people have had success in it. Yeah. And I would consider tweeting out and saying, hey, we are looking to do this. Anyone, you know, done it before so I could ask you some questions. My guess is typically when we get a question that's this specific, we often the next week get an email from someone saying, hey, I did that. Connect me with him. Awesome. Yeah. It's been kind of cool. It's like the startups for the rest of us community, you know, coming to the, the aid of one another, which I think is really, really cool. 
Yeah. Using the community is like, that's one of the, I think the big secrets for this community is the fact that we can use each other and learn from each other and help each other out. Cool. All right. We'll move on to the next one. So this has been submitted by Cassio. He says, hi, Mike and Rob. Thanks for providing such a valuable podcast. We have a bootstrap SaaS making low seven figures in ARR. As the founder, I constantly get emails from people interested in white label partnerships. These emails typically come from bigger businesses that are in the industry, but don't offer the feature we're most known for. Other times they come from random people who want to build a similar product, but don't have anything to offer. Our product is somewhat complex, not rocket science, but large like an ERP, EHR, et cetera. And we have a brand that is starting to get some recognition in the industry. White labeling our product would be non-trivial from a technical perspective, and I believe it would distract us from building our own brand. I wanted to know what your general thoughts are about white labeling. These emails are so frequent, I think I'm leaving money on the table. Thank you. Yep, this is a good one, and it's common. And if you start something that gets traction, you will get these emails. And my default response to these is very much like the default response to the junior rep, uh, junior partner at a venture capital firm. You know, you'll get two or three of those a month as well, asking if you want funding. And in general, the answer is now's not a good time. These white labeling in general is quite distracting. It is way more technically challenging than most developers or most people think it is. It's not just tweaking a product and, and swapping out someone's logo in the upper left. There's billing and there's um, you know, provisioning and there, there's just, I won't even go into it. it we, we evaluated it at one point and it is an enormous, it is months and months of development work. So what's cool is that if you're getting these interests, it shows you that this industry has interest in this tool and it's almost like you're you're going to get out ahead of these bigger players and they're trying to hedge their bet, you know, and they're trying to have the features that you have. To me, white labeling basically devalues your brand and creates a brand for someone else. And there are some, there are cases in which to do this, but I don't think that's a a real kind of microconf startup. So the rest of us like self-funded move. To me, you are trying to build a brand for the long term. You're an ambitious founder. You're you're doing low seven figures. Huge congrats on that. Most people do not make it that far. If I were in your shoes, I would not be having the conversations. If you're curious, maybe respond to one or two of them and do a call or two and and cap your time at five five hours of exploration per for two different deals or for two different conversations and see where it goes. I've done that. I've gone down the road with many. This is with multiple products. Not just Drip and Hittail, but back before that with Dotnet Invoice and a couple others. And every time almost, and I will say for me, it was without fail. That doesn't mean it's without fail, but it's going to be a waste of time because you are trying to build a brand that you want to last and to give someone else that brand equity and have to write a bunch of code on top of it. If you're, if you're already at some figures and, and you feel like you're growing and you things are are doing relatively well for you, I don't see why you would entertain this at all. I would agree with you. And I've done the same thing with Wedding Lovely. We had a bunch of white label requests from other companies. And I did do that process that you mentioned, where I was like, I did a few calls with them, with the folks is just see what they wanted and what they were they're thinking and what kind of money was involved. And every single time I at the end, I was kind of like, oh, that was a waste of time. Again, I could be wrong. Like there's probably instances out there where this is a good idea, but it's one of those things where it's like in general, like you said, for this kind of audience, it's going to be more pain than it's worth, especially if you're already doing that much in ARR. Rob, I have a question for you. Is there any situation 
in which you would think like that would make it worth it for you? Would it be like upfront, like an upfront contract? What would you think it would be the only situation where it'd be worth it? I was just asking myself the same question in my head of like, it's not a blanket no, it's like a 99% no. So what is that 1%, you know, or the 5% time you should do it? What's interesting, I'll go on a little tangent here. There was a, there's a SaaS app that I know of that was in the ESP space and they were originally, I think they were downloadable software that you installed on your own server. And then they white labeled for years and no one knew who they were and they grew into the seven figures. And then they had to pivot out of that, or they decided to pivot out of that and build their own brand. And their software was mature, but they had to kind of build brand equity from scratch. And I, I sat and watched it and I thought to myself, how, how would they have been? Cause their competitors were doing so much better by that time. You know, I thought to myself, how, how would they have been if they had never, never done that? The thing that comes to mind, there was, there was one time that I almost went forward with white labeling and it was in the very early days of drip and it was with a colleague I knew or a guy I knew who was in a completely separate, very tight vertical. And so it was a vertical we were not going to sell into. And it wasn't a ton of dev work. It was like weeks worth of dev work. And he was willing to commit to, I I don't remember the numbers, but it was like a non-trivial amount of, of MRR. And he had a big email list. It was kind of a prosumer niche, so it was a really large list. And he had a large number of paying customers doing seven figures of ARR with a relatively low price product. And he was going to email a list and promote it over the course of the year and do webinars. I mean, it was like he was going to really push it in. And it seemed like it could add 5, 10, 15K of MRR a few times throughout the year. And that was backward. That was a substantial amount of money to the company. And that was one time where we needed the money. And we almost went through with it. And then I honestly don't remember. I think it kind of petered off and we were going to do some research. And eventually we, you know, kind of mutually decided that this isn't going to work. And I don't regret that. I actually think that would have been a burden. You know, it would have been essentially legacy cruft that we would have had to maintain because within six to 12 months of that, you know, we were growing by 10K MRR a month and it would have been this thing that we had committed to that we had to maintain and would have always been like, what were we thinking? But at the time it, it may have made sense and helped us move faster. So that's kind of, that's kind of the one time I can think of it perhaps working for more of the self-funded indie funded types. Yeah. Like the only other thing I can think of, and this might not be the self-funded indie funded type of people, but when I was evaluating white label partnerships, just one other, other variable was if that company that wanted me to white label was an acquisition possibility. I have heard stories and some friends where they've built a product, they white label it for that company, but in the process of white labeling and working with that company, it comes out that it's just easier if they just get acquired. And so it's kind of like, if you wanted to be acquired, it can be an in, this can be very risky. This is a very risky way of trying to like get in an acquisition because you know things could fall through, the white labeling could just suck up all your time, it couldn't work. But I have heard instances where people start working with the company under a white label product and end up getting acquired at the end. So if that's something you might be interested in, that could be a path. I think that's a good point. That is another. It's where it's that strategic partnership, you know. And you'll see that with sometimes there's like a strategic investment of like, hey, big competitor number three wants to invest by 10% of the company and maybe they're an acquisition partner long term. White labeling would be another one. A really tight integration, you know, where everything goes back and forth. I mean, I would, before white label, I'd almost vote for like a, a really tight coupled integration. But you're right. It's, it's risky, but I do, I could see that as a play or a reason to do it. All right, moving on to question from Lee B. 
Lee says, hey, Robin, Mike, and had some really nice things to say about, about you and the podcast, a couple of paragraphs. I'm going to skip that and jump over to the question. So Lee, thanks for the, the wonderful compliments. Lee says, here to contribute my own question, it is not uncommon for developers to start at a small company with a reduced salary in exchange for a share of the company. This is what I propose to two founders of the company where I'm now writing software and they're on board. They feel reassured that I'm in it for the long haul and will feel more confident taking ownership and business decisions along the way. Now I take it for granted that I will want a lawyer to review any offer before it's signed. How does one go about selecting a lawyer who will represent me without being overly aggressive? Googling business lawyers near me is easy enough, but I would like some advice about what questions to ask and what to look for when dealing with a master of the dark arts of law. Thank you again for providing a back catalog of knowledge and advice. Dark arts of law. I like that. Uh, I like that phrase. Yeah, this, this is a good question and, and good on you for having a lawyer review it. Um, I, think, I think that's a good call. This, so the blanket advice I have is upcouncil.com. You start there, you look at the reviews. You, you know, it's kind of like Upwork for, for legal. And I have had generally good luck when I've, you know, tried to find someone with an expertise there. The way I think about it is I don't want a small town lawyer who specializes in tax accounting to review my startup equity grants, you know, or my stock option offer or my employment letter offer. I want someone who is familiar with the startup space so that they know, because they can, any lawyer can read a document and say, yes, legally, this is, says this, and this means that. But do they know what kind of the standards are? Do they know how the Silicon Valley treats it? Do they know how they, people treat it outside of the Silicon Valley? Have they dealt with startups that may have raised funding? Have they dealt with equity grants before, stock options, vesting, cliffs? All of this stuff is more than academic, right? It's something that the more experience you have with it, the more you know, ah, that's kind of a common clause to be in there, or that's not a common clause, and this is unusual, or I would push back. What I found is when you're dealing with lawyers who are out of their depth or out of their expertise, that's when they get overly aggressive because they're uncertain and they're trying to mitigate risk. But when they're in their comfort zone of like, yeah, I've, I've reviewed 10 of these in the past year, they tend to feel much, much more comfortable with it. I think the last thing I'll say is I've dealt with a lot of lawyers way too many, actually, just over the years of forming companies and doing all the stuff. And it's only been about 10 or 15% of them that I've really enjoyed talking to and having conversations with and that I feel like I actually have my business at heart and kind of my well-being and the company's well-being at heart rather than just kind of logging time. And that's super unfortunate, right? And that's just my experience. I'm not saying that's how the whole industry is. But once I've, I've found a couple attorneys in a couple different kind of areas of focus, of expertise, and I, I hold on to them for dear life. And I refer people to them and I use them for everything. And even there's there's one guy who doesn't do anything with tax accounting, but I'll even ask him tax accounting questions just because even his almost inexperienced answer is often better than the tax accounting attorney who is just stiff and giving me some boilerplate CYA answer. Now, if this attorney is just going to review one document, do you need a long-term relationship with them? Probably not. So you don't need to take it so far. I, I bet up, if you go to UpCounsel and look for folks who are experts in startup law and equity grants, I bet you'll be fine with it. But um, th those are my initial thoughts. What do you think, Tracy? Yeah, the best lawyers I've ever worked with have been referrals from friends. You know, because <laughs> there's so many out there and there's so many. It's like you don't want to spend the time chatting with a bunch of different lawyers and, and seeing if they're the right one for you. That's where like Googling for random lawyers near you, you can follow this trap where it just like takes way too long and you're talking to these lawyers and then you're not getting your contract reviewed. 
if it's all possible, asking people near me, other startups, other friends, people who are in their thing to, for a referral to their lawyers and getting their recommendations and their thoughts about how that lawyer works up front saves a lot of time. Because I've worked with some terrible, like you said, some terrible lawyers that never respond and or respond cryptically or respond with one liner and then charge me a lot of money for that one liner. And I've worked with some really amazing lawyers and the amazing lawyers have always come from referrals from other people who use them for the same situation that I did. That's great advice. And I think asking your personal network, going to Twitter and asking other startup founders, if you're in a, uh, you know, founder Slack group, if you're in the microconf crowd, if you're in founder cafe, if you know, there, there's all these resources you can go in and say, Hey, who knows a good lawyer? And we don't know the jurisdiction of your law. So I don't know if you're in the UK or the U S if it is a law that would be state dependent, or if it's, you know, you can get a lawyer in any of the 50 States and that often depends. Employment law tends to be state, whereas tax law is IRS and, and on and on and on. So, you'll have to look at the nuances of that, but it is, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that the best attorneys you're going to find are going to be referrals from other, from other folks. Yeah. That's a good point about different States. I wasn't thinking about that before because probably about 90% of the lawyers I've worked with, I haven't met in person. <laughs> I've always just worked with them remotely. So you don't necessarily have to have someone that you can go to the office and sit down and show them the contract. You know, you can find the right person to work with you where you can just you know, send over the, the contract over email and get their thoughts and, and pay without having to meet them. So for me, I prefer solo attorneys who work out of a home office and use Dropbox and DocuSign and aren't working for some huge firm with a big office downtown and still using paper documents that everything needs to be a phone call and they won't email and you know what I mean like there's this whole this real dichotomy and the, and the attorneys I enjoy working with the most are almost they're more like us they're more like startup founders they're agile they use the tech the cool hip stuff these days and that's what I personally would look for. Again, to review one employment, you know, or one stock option doc, you don't need to look for all of this. But if you're going to have an ongoing relationship, that's what I would be looking for. And it isn't even, I mean, cost is part of it, right? You know, a solo attorney working out of a home office is going to tend to be less expensive. They're also not going to delegate a bunch of stuff. Like that's what I hate is when I work at big firms, you talk to the attorney, great, you charge $700 an hour and you're you know, kind of your law students, paralegals and such are charging $350 an hour, but everything gets delegated to them and they don't tend to know what they're doing. They tend to have to loop the attorney in to make the hard decisions anyways. And you're the whole time dealing with a junior associate. And that gets, that's where I get super frustrated. It's like, no, I want to work with someone super knowledgeable and I am willing to pay for it actually. Like I, I'm willing to pay the rate, but like please answer my questions and don't funnel me through an intermediary. And when I have a solo attorney, that's, they're answering your questions and you know that they're the expert in what they do. Yeah. So some good questions today. Thanks so much for coming on the show again with me, Tracy. Yeah. I, again, super happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So as a listener, if you have questions that you'd love to hear read on the show or you want to send us a voicemail, make it to the top of the stack, please email us questions at startupsfortherestofus.com or you can always call our voicemail number if you're on the road. It's 888-801-9690. And Tracy, if folks want to keep up with you, they can go to tracyosborne.com or you are at Tracy Makes on Twitter. So thanks again to Tracy for joining me on the show. Had a good time answering some listener questions. Seriously, send in your questions. I think we have bandwidth for you know even, even more listener questions over the course of, of the next few months. 
If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to head to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever greater podcasts are sold and enter Startups for the Rest of Us to subscribe. Or head to our website, startupsfortherestofus.com. We have an email list. We almost never talk about this. It's a mistake. And there's several thousand people on the list. But if you really want to be in the know and you want to hear about inside baseball and, and hear about uh, you know when formats change and new designs, and we don't email very much, but it's just kind of being, being within the Startups for the Rest of Us community. Go there, enter your email. Again, we don't send very many emails and you can unsubscribe at any time. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you next time.